Welcome to the Geek and I podcast. My name is John Biscardi, and once again, we bring in our co-host this week, Mr. Jeff Dickinson. Jeff, how are you, sir? Most excellent. Most excellent. Okay, Jeff. Thank you very much. Would you like to, uh, you know, let me let me first start off by showing you what came in the mail for me the other day. I got one of the one of the viewers from our Legion M uh, ch- chat with. Uh, uh, Jeff Anison sent me this. This showed up. I don't know how they got my my address, but this showed up on my on my doorstep one day. This this six foot banner uh, wow. for, for Legion M, and it's um, it's that's awesome. It's pretty it's pretty neat. Right? So I want to I want to give a shout out to Lori. Thank you for uh, the banner. Um, hey Lori. I really appreciate it, and thanks for uh, thanks for watching the uh, the program. Okay, Jeff, let's um, let's bring in our guest this week. Uh, Man, my thing, oh, dude! I'm so pumped and excited. Check this out. We got this killer guest today. This is we're talking pop iconic dude. Wow, I'm holding back my excitement, but I can't. Let's check out this pop icon. Let's welcome to the show. Show him some love, Mr. Butch Patrick. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that, does it? You know, uh, I, <laughs> I, this, I had no idea that I would be on Star Trek. I love your opening here. You need William <laughs> Going where no man. man has gone before. No, it's just, right it's, on. This is the space. This is the, this is what's in between Jeff's ears. This is it. <laughs> It's just, uh, I love it. Hey, you know, man, it's a lot of cool stuff. And I know if I was <laughs> going to be on this, I would have put my pointed ears on and been Spock. <laughs> <laughs> you still you still wear those? Oh, yeah, all day long. Yeah. He <laughs> has to be really good looking to ask for the ears. But they're they're Bluetooth now, so that, that yeah. kind of helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> Plus, How I heard get good reception. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> How are you, sir? How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. How are you guys? Doing great. How's, uh, how's you know, um, we had mentioned, uh, you know, I had asked you where you are uh, at the oh. current moment. I am in Denison, Texas, just on the um, the Oklahoma border. Jeff, you are where in? Uh, your Dallas, name? Texas. Dallas. Dallas. And uh, I'm you in Manhattan up. Beach, California, uh, but I used to, li- I lived in Austin, Texas in 86, 87 and 88. I enjoyed Austin a lot back then. And I go through Texas quite a bit, but I am currently in Manhattan Beach, California, where it is 72 degrees and clear today. Oh, my gosh. Nice. <laughs> it's it's 30, 36 here in Denison. Oh, we should take it outside. Let's come on. Let's make this an exterior suit. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> in a bathing suit. Not, that's it. No. Well, not only does, <laughs> does the cold not want me to go out in a bathing suit. The yeah. viewers don't want me to go yeah, out. The neighbors, yeah. So, yeah, and the neighbors would have something to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, there was a there was a funny line in a movie one time, and for some way it, it always resonates. Michael Caine was in a movie called Blame It on Rio, and years and years ago, and he's and he's talking to the camera. He goes, "Sometimes when I take off my clothes, I wish I could leave the room." <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way. That's the way I am. <laughs> Well, Butch, I need to start out a question from a lot of our fans and viewers. You were in this really killer show called Lidsville. Yeah. What was it like working with Sid Marty Croft? You know, we're talking HR Puffs to fame, but in your own experience, how was that like? 
It was very interesting. Um, I was going to high school up at Hollywood Professional, which was a sort of a private uh, school for kids in the business because it was difficult in public school to keep going back and forth and back and forth. So this woman uh, opened up this school catering to professionals. And I happened to be going to school with the Cowsills, um, four of them. There was John, Susan, Paul, and Barry. I was in Barry's grade. So my agent contacted me and said, there's this Saturday morning show that they're interested in, in uh, they'd like to see you about it. I go, I don't want to do a Saturday morning. No, you know, that's like, that's like, you know, I'm not going to do it. That's like crazy. So she convinced me to go on an interview, which I did. And I met Sid and Marty Kroc. And I actually said, no, thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. And went home. And then Marty called again and said, no, we really, really would like you. You know, Jack Wilde did this and, you know, we made him a star. And I said, no, no, Jack Wilde was pretty much a star from Oliver. But I do, I do get it. Puffin' Stuff's a big hit. People love it. So I went back up for my second interview just to kind of like see, the, see what was going on. And I saw a big picture of the Bugaloos. And there was this cute little girl named Caroline Ellis that was in the Bugaloos. And I said, will she be around? Because if she's going to be around, I'll do the show. So he <laughs> lied to me. And he said yes. And <gasps> she, never did, she never did show up. But I wound up, instead of her... I wound up working with a bunch of great people, and Billy Hayes, of course, who was Witchy Poo on Puff and Stuff, played Jeannie. Charles Nelson Riley, who was all over television at that time, very funny guy, played Hoodoo, loved it. And then I got to work with a bunch of little people in Hollywood who I was already friends with, so it worked out really well. And it was, and it was actually to this day, looking back on it, it was a fun, it was a fun summer. It was only eleven weeks, and I turned eighteen doing it. Now, the I have, um, I don't know if you can see that uh photograph that's up there yes, um that can you make is, it bigger you're 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 pretty tall in this one so this this was you were 17 going on 18 in, in this no you know there's an old thing like you know if, if you're fat and you want to look thin hang around fatter people well i'm only five <laughs> seven but I'm, I'm standing next to a bunch of little people <laughs> okay. Okay. okay so i look tall <laughs> all right and then then i, then I have um yeah, there's a there it is, Jeff. It's yeah. a little little thank, bit longer. Thank you, sir. Yeah, the specs, um, you know. Yeah, yeah it's it's interesting because in Hollywood, you know, when you're a kid actor, uh, they never have your stand-ins are always little people. You know, that not midgets or dwarfs back then, but today it's politically correct, little people. So as you grow, little people become little, you know, larger little people. But you get to work <laughs> with them all. So I, everybody on that set, I pretty much was friends with already. So it was really kind of cool that I got to hang around some new friends with Billy and Charles and Sharon Baird, who was the original Musketeer. But a lot of the little people um, I had known, so it was it was a really cool eleven weeks. Now this I have an, I have another one here that who, yeah who 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 are you know <laughs> this you know, you know who's in that Jerry Marin is in that is in Ra Ra he was uh, the the last living Munchkin and he was mm-hmm. also Little Oscar. And he was paging uh, Philip Morris. He was like the most famous little person in Hollywood. Worked all the time, and Jer- and also Felix Silla, who you can only see part of Colonel Poom. Felix Silla, who uh, obviously was cousin It and Tweaky on Buck Rogers, and uh, he was an Ewok. And I mean, he just did work after you know job after job after job. And I met Felix on My Favorite Martian when I was seven years old. He played my stunt double, or eight years old. Now, well, that's how long I knew. That's how long I've known Felix. Now you got the Donny Osmond hair going on there. Was that? Uh... I actually cut about four inches off my hair for this show. Really? 
That yeah. that was some rocking hair, man. Yeah, I was looking like I should have been in uh, Zeppelin or The Dead or something. When I went in for my interview, they go, oh, my God, you're going to have to lose the hair. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. The reason I cut it was because <laughs> about, oh, about a year later, there was a bad story of George Lucas had approached me to cut my hair for a little movie. I was at the beach surfing, and he tracked me down. And I had very long hair surfing. And I come out of the water and he goes, hey, I would really like you to do this movie uh, about these cars up in Modesto in 1962, but you're going to have to cut your hair like a 50s look. And I said, no way, Mr. Lucas. I had no idea who George Lucas was back then. And American Graffiti came out and I went, oh my gosh, what a big mistake that was. Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> he, came looking, he came looking to me to play Richard Dreyfuss' part. And I said, no, oh, thank you, sir. Good luck with your No movie. way. Yeah. Wow. That... But everybody, everybody in Hollywood has one of those stories. It's funny. Uh, Paul Lamatt on that same level, he played Big John Milner. He turned down um, uh, Star Wars to play Han Solo. Jimmy and a very unknown wow. Harrison Ford, who was the guy that in the race driving the fifty-five, wound up. You know, it was a career changer for him. Well, I guess I guess that all goes to the uh, you know the hindsight is. 2020 yep. or you know you, yeah, everybody, you know, everybody something. in hollywood's got one of those stories or two or three right <laughs> you, know, you never know what you, know, you you don't know what you don't know so it's life like a box of chocolates <laughs> it, it all melts in your hand so that's yeah, right it all melts yes was that the only big part that you wanted to get that apparently you didn't get what it was dreyfus's it was a it was a starring role richard dreyfus's part. yeah i mean that, that was the biggest one that you missed, right? That yeah, for me, that was the biggest one I missed. Yeah, I did. Okay, you know, I only I was never going to be a career actor. I was simply a kid who stumbled into it and was saving money to build to buy a race car because my my dream was to be a race car driver, like you know, whether a fireman or an astronaut. Mine was a race car driver, but situations occurred that when I got my when I was eighteen, I was in the last year of the lottery for Vietnam, and I had a very low number, which meant if you had a low number, you were going to go to Vietnam. And so I got my money out of the bank early, petitioned the court because it was at that time it was twenty one, and I got him to change it to eighteen so I could get my money out because I thought I was going to go to Vietnam and never come back. So I went and blew all the money that I was saving for my race car because I thought I was going to die. And uh, then lo and behold, when I went up for my induction physical, they found that I had a bad knee that I wasn't, I didn't qualify for duty. And then they, they and they deferred wow. me. They classified me one H and uh, it was like, I was happy I wasn't going, but I was really unhappy that they didn't tell me that before I went and blew all my money. <laughs> right. right now. Well, speaking of cars, um, you know, talking about, Let's go back a little bit. The monsters. Yeah. You know, we, we get addressed the elephant in the room. George Barris did some iconic cars for that show. What was your thoughts on that? And did you ever get the chance to meet the gentleman in person? Oh, George and I were best, best friends for 50 years. And um, he, uh, my favorite thing to do on Monday morning when we would go in and read the script, if I saw the monster coach was going to be used, it was a very exciting thing for me for two reasons. Number one, we would be outside which we didn't see the light of day very often because we were always in the soundstage with a very dark and dingy Munster set. And number two, I would always ride up in the back in the coachman's seat, have the best seat in the house, so to speak. And this was a car that was the most iconic TV car at the time. Um, so I had, I had the best of both worlds. I was riding around in the Munster coach and, uh, you know, I was outside. 
So what does it actually feel like to, to ride in that, in that seat in the, in the back that's above it? You can actually see over, over the roof. And there was no seat belt and Fred had a tendency to pop the clutch. So you better hold that. (laughs) So you're doing popping wheelies down the road or. No, we took it out. He took it out one time unauthorized out the front gate to Lancaster Boulevard and went for about a three block joyride and came back. But that was the only time we actually uh, drove it on the actual street. Although it had been used after that many, many times for parades and such. Now, I which took one? It, I took it to the TV land awards once. I had George drive us up instead of a limo. I had the Munster coach and uh, George actually drove it and drove uh, uh, me and Natalie to the, uh, to the um, awards, which was excellent. Which which car did you like better? There was that one, and then there was the uh, the Dragula, right? Well, I've got you know I've got a Munster coach. I had a Munster. I have a Munster coach, and I had a Dragula. I would always drive the Dragula because it was like nice. a hot rod car, even though the coach was fast and had a big block. My coach had a big block Chevy, and it has a big block Chevy. But the the Dragula was always faster and louder, so that would be the car I would drive because it was a single seater, and I was the only. Yeah, there, there's my car. There you go. So yeah, that was the uh, the Dragula was the one that would light him up and get sideways and you know had a lot more power per uh, power per pound ratio. So you wound up with your sports car after all. Tom, what? Yeah, I, I, I you know I always was um, back in the in '69 when I got my license. My first car was a Mach One, and I had that for a couple of years. And then I wound up getting a 427, 435 Vet, which was a really a beast back then. And yeah. Um, I always had pretty cool cars as a kid and, and muscle cars were all the rage. So I grew up in a really good time. I, I really enjoyed my, my childhood. I was born in 53. So I saw a little bit of the fifties, remember a little bit of the fifties and all of the sixties and seventies. So I couldn't have asked for a better window on life. Now you're, you, you had mentioned that uh, you, you didn't want to be a child, child actor. Was it, was that something that, you wanted to be a race car driver. So how did you get into, you know, doing childhood acting? Uh, you know, it wasn't a typical, you know, um, Barbizon, John Powers thing. It was it was basically a friend of a friend in this little town, Gardena, where I live, wanted to be mayor. And to be mayor, he wanted to get my dad's endorsement, who was an influential guy in the area. My little sister was actually the target of the movie, the movie plot. I went along for the ride after they took pictures of her gentleman who was a the, the photographer to the stars for kids, especially took a couple of pictures of me for his own portfolio. And he put a picture in the window of his Hollywood Boulevard uh, studio. He liked it. He had this like put a hat on the kid and kind of get a goofy look about him. And he slapped it in the window and a, and a producer and a director were happened to be walking by and noticed it. They were casting a movie that required uh, some young kid, two kids. Actually, they had already cast one. And they had the younger little brother they hadn't cast yet, and they liked the look, and they tracked me down, and the guy said, he's not an actor. This is just a photo that he took. So I went up for this interview, and they basically, no experience necessary, liked that I could interact with them, and I wasn't intimidated by the process. I was seven years old. And um, they hired me for this movie. It was a great it was a great first-time uh, uh, you know, entry-level movie, but it starred, uh, it was called The Two Little Bears. And it starred Eddie Albert as my dad and Jane Wyatt from Father Knows Best as my mom. Soupy Sales was the comic relief cop. Um, Nancy Culp was a school teacher. Brenda Lee, 15 years old, singing sensation, was my older sister. So I worked for six weeks doing this movie. And during that six weeks, I picked up a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial and uh, a general hospital. So 
I was on the first episode ever at General Hospital, and that was you know pretty much the beginning of it. And how how Not did you bad. how did that turn into uh, Eddie Munster? Did you audition? Well, for I that? just continued to work, and uh, I did a lot of guest starring roles and a lot of little movies and this and that, a lot of commercials. And then 1964, I had just finished a year of the Real McCoys, and I went with my grandma back to Illinois to live with her because my mom had married a baseball player with the LA Angels, but he got traded to the Washington Senators. So the whole family moved to the East Coast, and there was pretty much nobody in the house. So my grandma said, well, I'll take him. And I went back to Illinois, and they, um, the agent found out that they were, weren't happy with who they had cast in the, in the show, in the pilot. The networks wanted a, a different mom and a different kid. So she got him to fly me out, and I went to the studio directly from the airport for a screen test with Yvonne DiCarlo. And they basically said, make arrangements to uh, get to work. And um, lived with my uncle. Hired a woman every day to take me to work, and that's how I became Eddie Munster. Now, who who was the the favorite that you would hang out with on on set? Because I mean, I I grew up coming home from school every day watching the Munsters uh, on TV, and I always kind of gravitated towards Herman because he was the goofy guy. He was tall like my dad was. Um, I just watched an episode yesterday on Cozy TV called um, Herman the Rookie, where he baseball one, yeah. he, he does the baseball thing. And, um, you know, who, who did you graduate gra- gravitate to on, on on set? Well, I'll kind of give you an, I'll just give you a, tip, a typical day. Number one, Mike Westmore was an apprentice makeup man at the time. And I was his first um, job, his first charge in the morning he had to make me put my ears on and get me started and he everybody knows who mike westmore is you know he won an oscar for mask and he's the guy on his, his daughter mackenzie westmore does face off and so anyway mike and i when you're in the chair for an hour and you're the first he's the first person you see in the studio you kind of bond with him and i admired him and he was handsome and he was young and he wore an ascot he drove a jaguar he was a bachelor he was like oh that's my kind of guy so my day would start with with chatting with mike and um I found out that I had the power of the pen very early. So I would always order breakfast for people to come up, you know, people that were working with me in the room and we'd all have breakfast together and I'd nibble on stuff. But after I would leave Mike, I would go to the set and Fred taught me the most Herman. Fred taught me the most about actual acting techniques. Cause we had a lot of father and son scenes that evolved. Originally Eddie didn't really have a lot of dialogue. A lot of times kids in network series are secondary characters they're kind of there to set up a scene or to set up a script idea, but they're not really in the meat of the dialogue. Right. Well, early on, they found out that I could handle dialogue and they really enjoyed the fact that I was like a little adult. They used to call me a 39 year old midget because they said, there's no way this kid's only 11 years old. He acts too old. So Fred was a very tall childlike character. And so they started writing these scripts that would feature Eddie volunteering Herman for something. Father and son shows were very popular so the screw we wrote. We, I wound up getting a lot of scripts written for me to work with Fred, and he would teach me acting techniques, which was very, very cool. And I, the shows were really popular. Grandpa, on the other hand, had the time to spend with me when the cameras weren't rolling outside, tossing a baseball. He was a big sports fan, so he taught me a lot about life. Fred taught me a lot about techniques and acting, but between the two of them, you know, I, I learned a lot. Now, do, nice. you, do you have a favorite? Did you have a favorite? Um set that you'd like to work in. I love the dungeon. 
whenever they went down to the dungeon, I, you know, I was glued to the TV as a kid. Yeah. Now, was there was there one that you you enjoyed working on? I'll tell you a funny. My book, my book, Munster's uh, memories. When the editor said, "Okay, it's time for your memory," we got the whole book was based about people's memories of the show. And I said, "You know, but the Munsters was my job." And yes, to answer your question briefly, yes, the dungeon was my favorite set. But my favorite memory was when they would say, I would look at the call sheet, and I would know that I would have a window of, say, an hour before lunch, lunch, and an hour after lunch. So I didn't have to really be back for three hours. I would know that. And that's when I would say, okay, I'm going to go explore, it just period, explore. And where would I explore? Well, I had the Universal Studios at my disposal to go poke my nose in sound stages, go visit uh, McHale's Navy at the Lagoon, go up and see my uncle who supplied horses to wagon train in the Virginian, go back to the lab and see what Mike Westmore was working on, or go down to the commissary and, and freak people out by by acting like one of the mannequins and then come to life and scare them. So I, you know, I literally had this entire studio at my disposal because I could, I knew how to enter a soundstage without causing them to have to reshoot anything. I knew how to be quiet and I knew all the routines and they knew I was supposed to be there because I'm in makeup. So that was my favorite thing to do was go explore the sets and explore the studio. And did you, you had mentioned that um, on Lidsville, you worked with Charles Nelson Riley mm-hmm. and the, the movie uh, working with soupy sales. Yeah. Did you have a, did you have a favorite recurring guest on, on the show? A recurring guest. Well, I, I really like Paul Lynn as Dr. Dudley. I thought he was hilarious. Uh, Harvey Corman did a couple episodes, but Dr. Dudley, because I actually interacted with him, there was a scene where Eddie's nickname, where I grew a beard and we went and saw Dr. Dudley. Um, uh, Bill Mooney did a guest guest star on Come Back Little Googie. And originally, see, originally on the Munsters, they wanted Bill Mooney to be Eddie Munster and his mom didn't like the idea of the makeup. So they basically eliminated Bill Mooney uh, because of that. And then they hired Happy Derman and then the networks didn't like Happy Derman. So I really... You know, it must have been fate for me to wind up being Eddie Munster because it certainly was, I wasn't their first choice. It's not like I went up and didn't get an interview. I just wasn't in town during the casting. So it's, I just lucked out that the network stepped in and said, we don't like the mom and we don't like the kid. Recast those two and we'll move <laughs> forward. Hmm. Now, yeah, I saw the pilot. Um, yeah. You know, I have all the DVDs. Well, on DVD. So. I saw the pilot and I was like, well, that's a whole different show. That was yeah. amazing that they got rid of what they did. And, yeah, it's, you know, uh, where it's, you at today. Uh, let me, let me yeah, bring you to uh, another memory, if you don't mind. Spot, you had a really cool pet. What was yeah, your thoughts he, about? He was actually, used, yeah, he was actually used in the, in the, in the uh, I think it's called the Lost World or Forbidden World. I think it was the Lost World. In the early 50s at Universal, they created a kind of a small T-Rex kind of dinosaur that was used. And, I, you know, they never throw anything away in the studios because you never know when you'll need it. And Spot was regurgitated into our family pet. But um, when, you're, when you mentioned about the, the two different, different show with the different people, the biggest change for the better, I mean, thank you. You know, I was happy that I got in there myself. But Yvonne DiCarlo was a huge star, and her name – above the line type movie star um, knowledge. I mean, her, her, her recognition as a movie star really helped sell the show a lot because Fred and I were from Car 54 and that was great. But Yvonne DiCarlo, movie star coming into a TV and then and handling Lily Munster comedy, she was really a secret weapon that I think her addition to the cast was instrumental in its success. Well, it's excellent, yeah. 
I now, agree. When when you're 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 act the um when they went from um Beverly to Owen Pat. to Pat, mm-hmm. you know, what was did that take a little getting used to? Did did um You know what happened with that is it was Beverly the story about I don't know if you know this Beverly went out to do a pilot. Her agent said it would never they would never see the light of day. Go out for the paycheck. You'll be home in a week. That was what her agent told her. Right. Lied to her. And yet, at the same time, the show on paper, it was very, you know, there was no guarantees this was going to fly because nobody really knew if it was going to be accepted. It was so, so one of a kind and so out there that on paper is like, oh, come on, give me a break. This will never work. <laughs> but... It became a huge hit, and Beverly, bless her little heart, she was in love with the guy in New York, and she was very homesick and very miserable during the first 13 weeks. And finally, Fred and Al went to the producers and said, you've got to let her go home. This isn't fair. This is like harsh and unusual punishment. And they go, hell no. She's an integral part of the success of this show, and she's not going anywhere. And Fred and Al, to their to their benefit, I mean, you know, to, to, to their um, respect for this, is they told her, told the producer, if you don't let her go, we will quit. You won't have a show at all. So there's your options, you know. Wow. And they, and they basically let her go. Didn't like the idea. But if you'll notice, the first 13 episodes with Beverly, the dynamics of the show is much different than the Pat Priest shows, where originally the scripts were very much geared about Marilyn trying to find love and a boyfriend, a boyfriend's dropping her off at the house, running away when they see the family, her walking in, oh, Uncle Herman, what's wrong with me? And it was very much like judging a book by its cover, you know, uh, it looked deeper than the skin, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was very different with Beverly, the show, the show structure. With Pat, bless her heart, she came in, did a really good job, but the show shifted gears to where now it became like Herman and Grandpa and Eddie getting into mischief in the dungeon, uh, Lily and Marilyn teaming up to do stuff in the kitchen, and it became more of a, a separation where Marilyn wasn't in the forefront as much. So there, there really was a a family dynamic between oh, yeah. between you know in those first thirteen episodes where they everybody stood up and said, you know, this is this is what it's going to be, or, or we're not going to well, do you it. Gotta wrong. Remember, it was a very you got to remember it was the sixties. A lot of social upheaval, a lot of civil rights stuff going on, a lot of, you know, color, uh, you know, and like I was joking, I said, we were like the first pe- people of color to be on TV starring in a show. We just, we just happened to be green. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there was very, very much a, a, a soft social uh, uh, statement being, it, it, being introduced in the show because people would be not wanting to live next door to the monsters, or they would be scared of the monsters. They would be intimidated by the monsters. And the people that had produced it had done Leave It to Beaver. And before they did Leave It to Beaver, they did Amos and Andy. So they had it in their DNA about doing this kind of stuff. So it was actually very, we were like the first mainstream uh, sitcom to have Herman and Lily sleep in the same bed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. So not easy being green, man. <laughs> <laughs> when uh when your show premiered, I think if if I I'm not sure if I have it the right way around, but you were either the week after or the week before the, the Adams family. Yeah, we were the Thursday after their Friday. They they premiered like on the eighteenth and we prepared we premiered on the twenty fourth. Now was there any any competition between 
those two or did had we had we been if we had been against each other head to head yes but because we were on different nights uh no it was actually we we helped each other's existence because whether you preferred one or the other you probably watched us both well that, that's the thing is you know i i i kind of, my progression has been you know kind of like the way it's been with gilligan's island when i was a kid i liked marianne yeah. when i got into high school all of a sudden ginger was my favorite so yeah. growing growing up, you know, I was a big fan of the Munsters, and then I got into my teenage years and my twenties, and I really enjoyed the humor on the Adams Family. But now that I'm older and I have kids, back to the Munsters. I'm back to the Munsters and that that fun, you know, goofy yeah. type of. Uh, you know, one of the comedy. things here's a, here's a, here's something that a lot of people they can't put their finger on why they enjoy the Munsters so much, and I mean it's like you know Paul McCartney, Howard Stern, Rob Zombie. It's got a very long list of celebrity people, but it's got a huge audience in just mainstream. Because I go out, like I say, my book is called Munster Memories. I've been at the table and I met nothing but people who come to the table with a big smile on their face, and they share. They grew up with their grandpa, their their favorite memory as a kid. Grandpa's no longer with us, but we used to sit and watch the Munsters, and he would laugh and he loved it. And Herman was his favorite, or my favorite was Grandpa. But they've all got these very distinct, fond memories. Warm, fuzzy feeling comes about them, and it's like. You know, how can you not enjoy, you know, engaging with these people that they basically you grew up in their household. They consider you a friend of the family. Uh, it's a it's an amazing situation. But one of the things that I always tell people is that people aren't aware of the Munsters was an extremely well produced show. It had great sets. It had great editing. It had great camera work. It had great guest stars, great music, cool cars. Every there's not one weak link in that show, and when, it, when you put together something of quality nature, that's what keeps people coming back to it because it's just so damn well done. Right now, why did it end after only two seasons? A uh, couple things. Number two, uh, black and white to color. The, the, tr the transformation of network programming was going into color. There was a little bit of a cost uh, analysis between who's going to pay for it. Was it going to be Conley and Mosier? whether it's going to be uh, CBS. Number two, Batman. We had gone through three different shows that had been put up against us, and we beat them all. Batman, they brought Batman on to knock us off, and they did. Batman took ratings away from us. He was very popular, and it was a color show. Number three was the ratings were down a little bit. Batman was doing well. Number three, Fred and Al were from New York, and they had been out into the West Coast for two years. Fred had had some tragedy in his life, and... He and Al, I think, were ready. They thought the scripts were getting weak. I think they were ready to go back to New York. Fred was tired of doing the show. He was, you know, his losing weight. It was tough on him as a physical specimen. And he took a lot of, uh, you know, his body took a lot of abuse. I think, I think those contributing factors all just said, let's just make a movie, Munster Go Home, in color. It'll satisfy everybody. We'll introduce the Munsters to the world, do a movie, set, set up a syndication package with only 70 episodes. And they felt that they could do it because they knew the toys were selling so well. It was merchandise like nobody, excuse me, it was merchandise like nobody's business. So they knew that, that it would have longevity. I don't think they ever foresaw that it was going to be around for 50 years because, you know, syndication wasn't really tested yet. It was sort of a very, in its infancy, whether or not people would watch shows that had already been seen and whether advertisers would, would pay for the spots. And as we all know, syndication became like the like gold mine 
of all you know TV producers and production companies. Right. Do, do you do you still watch the show when you like turn them through uh, Cozy TV or Antenna TV? Do you catch it every yeah, once? Yeah, okay. I watch certain episodes. Uh, or if somebody asks me if I you know somebody that I like, they want me to watch it with them. Yes, I will. But there's certain episodes that I'll watch again. It's like the Honeymooners. There's you know certain episodes I'll watch over and over and over, like Twilight Zone. You know, we all have our you favorite. Have, you have a favorite episode that you you know you you sit down and you say, oh, you know, this one's on. I'm gonna stop. Well, I like, I like Herman the Rookie because my stepdad, who wanted to be an actor, the, base, the baseball player, got his one and only acting job thanks to me. Uh, no, Fred and Al actually got it for him because they liked Kenny, and Kenny was a ball player, and he was the catcher. No, no, not me, Leo. I'm going back to the minors. And uh, the ir- irony of it was he actually did go back to the minors for the Chicago Cubs, which Leo DeRocher was managing, and that's when he, he ended his career because uh, he had dislocated his shoulder. He was a really good player and had a bad break. With a um, with a right uh, shoulder dislocation during a game, which cost him his throwing arm. He never really had the same arm after that, and he was he was a center fielder. And without a big cannon, you know, in center field, they moved him to first base. But you know, anybody that knows baseball, you, you, an outfielder is an outfielder. It's hard to transfer a guy to first base. It's a it's a difficult transition. But Kenny, when he came up through the Yankees, he was Mickey Mantle's roommate. He's buried next to Roger Maris. Um, big baseball, you know, coming from North Dakota, he, he had a big career ahead of him. And unfortunately it was cut, it was cut short on the, at five years because of his injury. Um, I loved Eddie's nickname because of Paul Lynn and the beard, just a 10 year old kid with a beard just looked funny to me. And it was a funny episode. <laughs> a hot rod Herman, where we go to the drag strip and we introduced the Dragula is one of my favorites because that gave us a second cool car and Zombo. Zombo with Louie and I, where I, you know, I go on a TV, what I consider to be a TV show, and I'm very disillusioned when I find out that Zombo doesn't really live in a house like we have, and he's not really what he is on TV. That one, that one, I can remember that one the first time I saw that. That one really freaked me out a little bit, because Zombo was, <laughs> Zombo was a little spooky looking. Yeah, and it, and it was funny, the fact that, you know, we go in, and they think that we're dressed up for it, and I go, to, you know, I go to the producer, I go, what's the matter with Zombo's house? Everything's crummy. Isn't anything real around here? He goes, real? It's television, Eddie. Nothing's real. Now, what, when you're when you're on set in a, in a show like that, and there's spider webs and dust everywhere, um, is it like, do you get it on your on you like is it in your face do you get it in your eyes and go hold on a second i can't see because somebody patted the couch down no the 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 the, 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 the cobwebs were rubber they were liquid rubber so that wasn't bad they, they you know they get on your clothing ball up and you get it off you the bet the, the worst thing was the um smoke when we would get stuck when we'd be coming out of the dungeon well, that was just a big kind of like a six foot deep pit with steps down there. And they would shut the door and they would fill it up with smoke. And you have to hold your breath and hear, wait for action so that when the door opened, the smoke would come, you know, em, you know, come emitting out of the dungeon. That was the worst is when you had this sort of like uh, really, you know, the smoke in that tight confines in the in the dungeon uh, entrance. That was the worst. Other than that, now nah, it was easy. Yeah, is the is the Raven still alive, or as the Raven? Raven you know, that clock just sold. It's funny that clock just sold at auction for like one hundred eighteen thousand dollars. Whoa! I didn't buy it. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I would have, but I knew. <laughs> well, thank you very much for spending some time with us oh, today. Uh, well, let me tell let me I got to end I want to tell people a couple things. Number 1, uh, monsters.com. I've owned it for almost 30 years. 
I actually spoke with Universal Studios the other day, and uh, they're all they for some reason it came under their radar, and they questioned it like, "Hey, you got Monsters.com?" I go, "Yeah," and and then they they looked into it, and they found out that I'm a good ambassador for the show, that I do good quality stuff, and there's nothing you know nefarious going on. Um, so if you, anybody wants anything to do with Monsters or my schedule or what's going on next year, because I am going to be touring around, I got a really cool. Um, Monsters and Magic, I'm working with a, an illusionist named David Merlin, and we're going to go out to theaters and kind of recreate a big fan. In the 40s and 50s, evenings out, they had a thing called a movie and magic. And we're going to we're gonna show Monster Go Home on Blu-ray with Rob Zombie and my commentary. Then I'm going to do an introduction of Q&A and do that. And then I'm going to introduce David Merlin, who's going to be doing another hour of illusions with two. He has his own show, but we've integrated and inserted two Monster illusions, one with the coffin, the uh, the coffin phone booth, which someone will get into and disappear. It would be great. And then we're also going to have an illusion where we levitate a Marilyn out of the audience. I, I go find a 125-pound uh, a or less <laughs> person because uh, that is how the work is how it works. And we will turn her. If she's not a blonde, we'll put a blonde wig on her. And if she doesn't wear a polka dot dress, we'll give her one. And we're going to elevate a Maryland from the audience, but it's going to be fun. We're going to go all over the country because some of the hardest hit businesses have been theaters. They yes. have been closed down for the entire year. And this is, and I have my Munster coach, so it's going to be the Munster here. I'll even show you a picture of what the poster looks like. It's really cool. I'm very excited about this because this is something that I really enjoy. And um, here is the, I don't know if you can put this up. I think you'll be able to see this. Let's see. Can you can Take a big, that? John. Yeah. Hold on. Whoa, that's badass, bro. I don't know. Is that, can you see that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we're going to be doing that. And number two, and I got I've uh, we did a pilot for a new show called Toy Scouts, where a gentleman goes all over the country and buys toys. And it's kind of like American Pickers, where I'll be uh, his sidekick or wingman, where um, we find huge collections of people, uh, I mean, huge collections that people own, of not only TV shows, but whatever it may be. And then we go out and uh, do buying tours, and that'll be called Toy Scouts. So it's a little bit of um, kind of like collector call, but it's also like American Pickers with a little bit of this. And plus, during the road trips, I get to look for barn finds of muscle cars that have been uh, lost and uh, found. So that's going to be something I'm looking forward to. So well, if there's if there's a um, a stop that you're going to make here in the Dallas area, please let oh, us know. And the Munster Mansion. Yes. yes, Waxahachie, Texas, on, and I'll sign off with that. The, uh, the if you're ever in the uh, Waxahachie area, there's a there's a mansion out there. These this uh, uh, it's uh, Chuck and Sandra McKee are good friends of mine. I've known them about 15 years. I actually lived, I actually stayed in that house the, 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 for the grand opening Halloween when they first introduced it to the public, and it is a spot on no pun intended duplicate of the Munster Mansion. <laughs> And it's one thing, it, and here's the interesting part. It's one thing for, to look at the outside of it and see it, which is nice. But the inside was the trick. She decorated it exactly like the Munster Mansion. That, to me, was the hard part. I mean, yeah, building it, that was tough. Chuck put in a lot of, you know, he, he built it. But she decorated it, which is amazing. I mean, it's got the right threshold, the front door. It's got the coffin phone booth. It's got spot under the stairs. It's a must-see. And she actually, now she's doing murder mysteries out of it. So, if anybody wants to go out and see the house and, and do a murder mystery, they need to check into the Munster Mansion in Waxahachie. Yeah, I was I was on their website uh, actually yesterday, and I saw that. And I think my wife has always been wanting to do a murder mystery, oh. so I, 
I think. Please, please go out there. It's amazing. They do such a good job. And the, and the sidebar is you get to see the Munster Mansion as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that don't tell anybody, but that might be her Christmas present <laughs> this year. Okay. It's a good thing. She doesn't, Thanks, look, she doesn't watch the show. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. We, uh, we hope to talk to you. Like, like I said, if you're going to be swinging by the Dallas area with the show, um, okay, okay. Uh, please, please hit us up and we'd love, we'd love to, we'd come and meet you in person. Maybe, Thanks, maybe not shake hands in these times, but, uh, you know, bump elbows, maybe. All right. No worries. Boom. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Oh, Jeff, let me tell you something. I don't know. I don't know what to say. That was goosebumps, brother. Goosebumps. I, I do have. I do have goosebumps. I mean, he, growing up as a kid, watching, and still to this day, like I was, like I said, I, I watched, I watched four episodes. Uh, you know, I record four episodes on my TiVo every day, off of uh, off of Cozy TV, and I watch it. You know, whenever I need a good laugh or a good smile or just to bring you know memories of 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 my parents you know and living back home it's it's one of those shows that will be with me forever and and you know i can't wait until my grandson is old enough to sit down and watch a little bit of the monsters maybe i can be grandpa he's pop culture royalty right here man we are blessed to have him aboard patrick thank you my sir for sharing time with us with everybody here especially at the Geek and I podcast, because what we're always about is pop culture and movies and extraordinary souls. So yes, today you got the bonus round. That was, uh, that was certainly was a bonus. And uh, thank you, Jeff, for uh, being here again. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, for, for uh, news information and anything you need to know in the world of geek, you can uh, visit geeknewsnow.net. We are part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Um, find them online at geeknewsnow.net or on Facebook at Geek News Now. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Geek and I podcast. And this week we are sponsored by Metallic Dice Games. For everything you need for your gaming experience, use code GNN at checkout and save 10%. You know, you can get, uh, I don't know if you play those tabletop games with the 100 sided die that you need oh, yeah. a magnifying glass to see the numbers. <laughs> you, can, you, you can get those at metallicdicedames.com and just remember to punch in GNN at checkout and save 10%. So once again, thank you, Jeff, for uh, another week of um, broadcast excellence. Or I've got something to tell you, though. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Tell me. Well, the Collector Zone has a special unboxing. It's this guy right here. It's a Dragon Slayer miniature authentic game. So check out the video. I have a link below on how you get one too for you. For me or for in general? Well, for everybody. Okay, that's cool. I would I would take one of those. Christmas is coming, Jeff. Remember. Tell you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, and uh, Jeff, as you say all the time, we will see you on the next one. Later's. Later's. <laughs>